Welcome to the Film Matters Podcast. I'm Jason Weedle. Usually on this show, we review a specific movie, a specific film with a group of people, and talk about our impressions and what the movie has to say about faith, our relationship with God, our relationship with each other. Today's show is a bit different. I spoke with Gareth Higgins, and parts of this interview are included in the last Where Are We Going podcast. Gareth's thoughts and ideas about film are so fascinating and incredible that I thought it was important to share the entire interview. So the rest of this show will be my interview with Gareth Higgins. If you're interested in hearing some of the interview as well as some other thoughts about art and its relationship with faith, please look at the last Where Are We Going podcast episode that deals with art and Christianity. Gareth Higgins, thank you for joining me. Uh, you're very welcome. Good to be here. Would you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sh- sure. Uh, so I'm uh, I'm from uh, uh, Northern Ireland uh, or the the north of Ireland, and uh, I've uh, lived in the United States for about seven or eight years. I'm a writer, and uh, I also am involved in uh, hosting retreats and and festivals. My uh, connection with your show is to do with I have a huge passion for cinema and storytelling generally in, in all different kinds of mediums but uh, the movies have been a really important part of my life for as long as I can remember and I've, I've written a couple of books about cinema and spirituality and uh, I, uh, I, I can't imagine life without cinema mm, yeah and and now you do a uh, basically a film festival called Movies and Meaning. Yeah, that's right. Movies and Meaning is a, a it's a different kind of film festival uh, in that it's focused consciously on the idea of making a better world through the stories we tell. I I believe firmly that our identities are formed. Uh, in conversation with the stories we're telling ourselves about ourselves. And if we have a distorted uh, version of the story, for instance, a story in which we're always the victim uh, uh, and at an individual level or a story in which uh, violence or force or you know, ultimate power always uh, brings order out of chaos, then I think we're going to have lives that are full of conflict that will perpetuate uh, division and suffering in in the world, and this is an this is an ancient truth, and it's been it's been researched for hundreds of years, and it's been particularly, uh, I think, comprehended by uh, the uh, theologian and philosopher Rene Girard, and uh, someone who who was really influenced by him, Walter Wink. Uh, a theologian who wrote about power and violence and who I got to know as a mentor. And what Walter really taught me was that if you tell the story in such a way that violence always resolves things, then you're just going to replicate that in your life, starting with the violence you do to yourself in terms of your own self-image, the violence you do to others in terms of how you treat them, and how many of us are willing to tolerate violence, that if we really sat down and thought about it, if it was happening to us or if we were directly carrying it out ourselves, uh, we would pause. Um, 
so Movies and Meaning is rooted in this idea that the stories we tell are very powerful. Most of us are unconsciously playing out a story and it's a good idea. It's part of the task of emotional maturity and, and, and thriving and happiness in the world uh, to start to think about those stories. And I think movies are among the most powerful storytelling mediums. So we bring people together in one of the most beautiful movie theaters in the country, if not the, the world, the Chemo Theater in Albuquerque, New Mexico. It's a beautiful, exquisite theater. It's 90 years old. It has 650 seats. It has a balcony and a big proscenium arch. It's a real palace. Uh, and we watch films, uh, new uh, surprising films and, and, and older classic iconic films. And then we have an opportunity to work with what those stories stirred up in, in us, what did they make us feel? What did they make us think? How did they challenge us? And uh, we have uh, speakers like the, the distinguished spiritual activist Richard Rohr, uh, who helps us think through some of those things. Um, we have poetry, we have dancing, we have uh, ways of taking the ideas and the images and turning them into personally transformative exercises. So it's kind of a dream for me because I've I've loved film festivals for as long as I can. Uh, remember, but I have been influenced by people who want to do away with the idea of elitism that often happens at film festivals, so there's no red carpet and we don't do kind of highbrow film analysis not that there's anything wrong with that, that's just not what happens at our festival our festival is, uh, we call it a, a dream space laboratory for a new world, which uh, is maybe a pretentious way of describing it but I, I really mean it, it's a dream space it's a space where we get to dream together uh, and experience these projected dreams, which I think is what movies are, uh, in the best possible environment. Uh, better than watching them on TV, better than watching them in, in most of the multiplexes that, that exist. Mm. Um, we get to build community with like-minded people who really care about this. And eventually, as we build the festival, uh, we're, we're hoping to provide a showcase or a platform for filmmakers and other artists who are doing work that understands the power of story and uh, who deserve an audience uh, for their stories that they may not otherwise get. Uh, or if they get an audience, it might not be one that is facilitated in really thinking about the work and uh, asking questions about what its meaning is in our lives. That's what movies and meaning is. That's, that's really, really interesting, and I, I appreciate what you have to say about story and the stories that we tell do you think in general the stories that we are telling through film and through television and, and just in general is going in the right direction? And I kind of ask because I think about this in um, very often when I hear the criticisms that come especially from some parts of Christianity about this just decline into immorality and this slide yeah. toward hell. <laughs> and, yeah. and so I, I, I look around often and I, you know, looking at the stories that we are telling are a reflection of, of basically the values of our culture. And it seems to me that the values of our culture are not perfect, but are on the right track. Yeah. Um, I, I have a lot of sympathy for that point of view that you just suggested. In, in, in Woody Allen's film Midnight in Paris – uh, 
there's a, a, a lovely funny bit where Owen Wilson travels back into that. I think it's the 1920s. And he's talking to people like Salvador Dali and Toulouse-Lautrec and, and you know, some of the great um, uh, artists and Ernest Hemingway, people who were living in Paris at the time. And, and he, he catches this sense from our time in the contemporary world in the, 20, in the 2010s of, oh my goodness, wouldn't it have been great to have been in Paris in the 1920s? That, that was the golden age. And then he's talking to people in the 1920s and one of them says, oh, you should have seen what it was like in the 1890s. Mm. That, was, that was when you really wanted to be around. And I understand that nostalgia. Uh, and um, uh, this is not to suggest that there were not uh, uh, things we can learn from in the past, but uh, I think some of the best research out there shows that a lot of things are actually getting better in the world. Um, what's happening that distorts our vision is we tend to see what's right in front of our face more closely. Of course, that's just a natural uh, reality. There's, there's actually a psychological term uh, for this. It's called the availability heuristic. What the availability heuristic is, uh, is it's, a, it's the title given to the way human beings predict probability. Uh, so if I ask you, how likely do you think there's going to be a hurricane? Uh, your answer to that question will depend on how easily you can recall examples of hurricanes happening uh, in the context that I'm questioning right. you about. If you ask uh, someone who is suffering uh, grievously from an experience of violence, and we're recording this podcast just 10 days after uh, the, the, the attacks in Paris, so, and, and, and I have a particular resonance with those attacks, having grown up in, in Northern Ireland, although we never had an attack that, that took us many lives. Uh, we certainly had the experience of living with the threat of violence and of the possibility and of the reality of it erupting anytime, anyplace. Um, and so you ask people who are very close to violence, how likely do you think violence is, is going to be? Their answer will be skewed by how easily they can recall uh, those examples. Sure. Globalization and, and um, uh, electronic connection has brought stories of horror closer to us more frequently than at any point in human history. Until not very long ago, humans only heard stories from their own village and maybe never even left their village during their lifetime. So I think our, our brains haven't caught up evolutionarily uh, with the sociological fact that we are so connected. Um, the, the best research uh, around today seems to be suggesting that globally uh, violence has been declining radically over time and that we're now globally living in the most peaceable time in human history. Now, I know that that is not a comfort to people who are experiencing uh, a terrorist uh, act or a civil war in this particular moment. That's why I say this is a global uh, uh, reality. The good news for those of us who are close to experiences of violence is we know more than we've ever known about how to prevent violence, about how to reduce violence. What uh, the uh, philosopher Peter Singer calls the expanding circle of empathy uh, has become the accepted norm in intelligent 
conversation. So intelligent conversation, mainstream conversation, can't be as racist as it used to be and get away with it. It can't be as homophobic as it used to be. It can't be as patriarchal as it used to be uh, because a different conversation has overtaken those prejudices. So the very fact that we, when the Paris attacks happened within hours, people were saying, you know, why are you changing your Facebook profile to a picture of the Eiffel Tower when there was a, a, a mass murder in Beirut just 24 hours ago? The very fact that that question was being asked is evidence that we are paying attention to marginalized people, to the idea that we are a global world, that what unites us is our humanity, not our ethnicity or our national identity. I know there's a struggle between that version of events and a, dominant, a dominating violent version of events, but, but the very fact that there's a conversation going on is a sign that things are getting better. Uh, to take it to the question of, of, of film and entertainment, you know, I, I haven't done research or seen research into, you know, percentage-wise, how many movies tell a better story about violence uh, versus how many movies simply replicate what Walter Wink called the myth of redemptive violence. Um, so I don't know what, what's happening in terms of the proportions, but I can say this. I've seen more films in the last two or three years that advocated mercy than I think I've ever seen. I've seen more films in which the villain... Is under, there are attempts to understand the villain's motivation and in which the villain is not simply destroyed with ultimate force. Uh, at the end, I think of the Lego movie, which you know, many people think of as a kid's film. It's not. It's a film that kids will really enjoy, uh, but it's got really adult sensibilities in it. A film in which we understand why the bad guy behaves the way he does and he gets invited to redir- redirect his energy. If you can hear my dog barking in the background, it's because she, she agrees with me. Uh, <laughs> can I just ask, when do um, you think the exposure... Um, the, this happens in, in, in Big Hero 6. Yeah. Do, do you think that the exposure you. that we have to... You know, you, you mentioned just the exposure that we have just in general, that we can see not just the hurricanes, but we can see the violence that's going on around the world. So we have an expectation that it's more, uh, that, that it's happening more frequently than maybe it really is, that we are at a greater danger than we really are. Do you think there is damage done to us if we have more exposure in, from film, whether it's a, fictional accounts and just, you know, explosive summer blockbusters or whether it is more um, historical accounts and and movies that we sometimes feel are important, but is that doing something to our understanding of how much violence is in the world? Oh yeah, unquestionably. I mean, if you if you think about how we learn, we we learn through repetition, through repeated exposure. So you know, when you're learning how to how to how to count, you repeat the times table. Um, I, people learn theology particularly through singing worship songs. Uh, uh, sing, singing uh, hymns. People learn about their national identity through things like pledging allegiance to the to the flag and the kinds of statements that presidents make re- repeatedly. It doesn't matter what 
party they come from or what their shade of, of uh, uh, social uh, polity might be, they're always going to say uh, that America is the greatest nation in, in the world, that the American military is the greatest fighting force the world has ever seen. And those are just cliches. They may or may not have some truth uh, to them, but we, we learn through repetition. So unquestionably it's the case if you repeatedly expose yourself to a story arc in which bad guys never actually have any comprehensible motivation for what they do and all ultimate force by the good guy is justified because of the nature of what the bad guy does and the only way uh, to eliminate the bad guy is through destroying them, then of course you're going to be more apt to support those kinds of policies in the real world. Whereas if you intentionally and consciously seek out stories that offer an alternative, and I'm not saying that you, know, you only have to watch Gandhi, the, the, the movie of, of, of Gandhi's life. I, I'm actually interested in films that tell stories about violence that are truthful. And for me, the difference between a violent story and a story about violence is, does it tell you the truth about how violence happens, why it happens, what its impact is, and how it can be resolved. So I don't mind, if I watch a film that's horrifying, I actually prefer to be horrified if it's about real-world violence. Real-world violence should horrify us. Hmm. Um, If I watch a film that tells me why someone ended up acting out the way they did... uh, I think that's good news for the world because it can influence the way we think about addressing people's lives before such violence manifests. Um, An amazing recent example, I'm going to try to avoid spoilers here. I don't know if you've seen the recent James Bond film, Spectre. Have you you seen it? I I have not, no. Okay, so... um, the, part of the answer to your earlier question, you know, are things getting better in film? Again, I don't know what the proportions are, but I am seeing more examples of stories that try to be a little more truthful about violence. And remarkably enough, the new James Bond film deals with the bad guy in a careful, thoughtful, merciful, practical way that actually invokes the value of democracy uh, over the quick fix of ultimate destruction. And I was quite stunned by this because it's absolutely not what you expect from James Bond. And I don't know why it's in there. I'd love to to ask the writers uh, Mm -hmm. and and the director about why they they put it in there. My hope is that um, one of the positive unintended effects of us seeing so much more violence than, than many of us, particularly those of us in the West, have ever seen before, is that we know it's too co- we're starting to learn it's too costly to tell violent stories purely for the purpose of entertainment. Now, the minority report in me, the, the part of me that wants to question my own view on this, would say... It's possible that certain kinds of violent stories f- provide some kind of catharsis. Um, 
that we, we watch them, we see the good guy overthrowing the bad guy, we feel like we've exorcised some demon inside us, and then we don't go and commit an act of violence or we become less violent uh, as a result. And I think you know, it would be very useful to see some research done into that. So I, I'm not willing yet to say that uh, every time a film replicates the myth of redemptive violence it's innately bad because I just don't know. I think we're sitting with this tension and uh, I, I, I do think, however, it's not as simple as violent films create violent people. I think violent films are a symptom of an entire way of life and talking about meaning, the foundations of Western culture uh, sure. being that you can cleanse the world through violence and um, you will you can bring about order out of chaos through violence when when and you I, talk about when you talk about james bond i i think that is james the entire franchise is also an interesting examination of the direction of culture because it's perhaps gone on longer than maybe any other franchise in 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 film and i've actually been been watching some of the old movies um and the way we see things, the values change in those films um, is quite obvious. Um, not just talking about violence, but we talk about the way women are treated and portrayed, the way um, attitudes are toward people of other ethnicities or ethnic backgrounds uh, or, or, or national backgrounds. Um, so many of those things, you know, are pretty abhorrent in mm-hmm. early James Bond movies. But we have learned as a society to, tr- to treat people better. And so they are treated better. Mm-hmm. In, or, or, or we at least see um, a different kind of set of values in, in newer films. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I mean, the way women particularly have been treated in James Bond films is, is pretty reprehensible. In the new one... It's kind of a mixed bag, but one, the positive part is that uh, the moral center of the film is, is a woman. Um, the person who has the most uh, profoundly thoughtful thing to say in the movie uh, is a woman and also happens to be the child of a, of a villain. Uh, the, the amazing thing about the, the climax of this particular Bond film is that it is not just aping what's already happening in society. I would, suge- I would contend that the way the villain inspector is dealt with is actually a moral advance on the way uh, such villains are dealt with in the real world. Com- again, I don't want to spoil it, but if you compare uh, the way Osama bin Laden was dealt with compared with the way uh, the villain in the new Bond movie is dealt with, the movie is a moral advance, and I'm not saying that. that uh, I'm, I'm not talking. I mean, when I say things like that, people often say, "So I suppose you would have just rolled over if you were in Poland in September 1939 when Hitler rolled in." Um, absolutely not. I haven't said anything like that at all. I believe in, in a, a, absolutely in accountability and restraint uh, uh, under the law uh, for for people who are threatening or have committed. Uh, violence, but what I think is far more important is how can we prevent violence in the long term? How can we reduce it further, even in the short term? And we don't do that by replicating the tactics of the people who are threatening us. Uh, 
Uh, we do that by a renunciation of the same kinds of values. Um, Richard Rohr says the best criticism of the bad is the practice of the better. And it, it's, it's an, an amazingly, it's a very pleasant surprise to discover a James Bond film emulating what the practice of the better could look like. Hmm. You, you mentioned um, telling the truth and if a, a, a film is truthful. Yeah. And that that's a, a little bit of a struggle that I've had through the years. Um, you know, I, I grew up in conservative culture, conservative Christian family, and so the uh, the entertainment that was thought of as good was just simple uh, simple entertainment that showed good values where the good guys won and the bad guys lost and it didn't have too much sex and violence and bad language. Um, and so I, I honestly still struggle with some of that in finding what is the ultimate value in something if there is too much that is objectionable. Um, does that stand in the way of uh, what is ultimately being said. And, and, and so I often say, is this something that is true or not? Mm -hmm. um, so what, what, what about that? What about that idea that um, how do we measure the truth of something? And when we are, you know, as an audience, um, when we're watching something, if there are too many f words and it's just a barrier is that a problem if there's nudity and that's a problem for us and it distracts us is that a problem well you know people get to make their own minds <clears throat> their own minds up about what what they want to um you know bring into their their lives i would say however i think everybody needs a circle of about half a dozen friends each of whom is emotionally mature in a way that nobody else in the group is. Um, you know, the, the problem is most people don't have a circle of intimate friends at all, or if they do, it's a circle of reinforcing victimhood or reinforcing monotony. Um, and uh, the, you, it, the, the ideal friendship circle is the one in which everybody, each person has a little bit that nobody else in the group has. And then they can bear with each other. I mean, this is what it's like to, you know, to bear each other's burdens, to listen to each other's stories, and discern truth uh, together. I'm, I'm, I, I don't, I don't think that we, I don't think that we ever really apprehend the world by ourselves. Even if we were on a desert island, our perceptions of the world would still be shaped uh, by the influences that formed our brains. Um, so, you know, when I'm thinking about something, it's not only me that's doing the thinking. It's my, it's, it's my parents' influence. It's my, my school's influence. It's my childhood's influence. It's, it's what I had for breakfast. Um, so I, th I think discernment is best done in community. I think it, it's always valuable to ask yourself, if I didn't, if I didn't think the way I think right now, how might I think? <laughs> if I disagreed with myself, what would be the questions I'm asking? Which is what I, I think I, I, I was indicating earlier when I said, even though I feel very strongly about the way violent stories are told, I want to allow for the possibility that maybe, maybe violent stories have some cathartic uh, uh, power. Um, and so 
the 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 the, the deeper question here is about fear. I think certain religious and political cultures nurture fear, and, but they call it purity. They call it identity. They call it the community. And actually, it's, it's just fear of the world. Mm-hmm. And for many people, it has come because of really painful, punishing experience. That's why they're afraid. And so I think it's important to be grace, gracious and compassionate. Uh, to such people. It's hard when they're behaving like bullies. I think, for instance, you know, Donald Trump appears to be, um, to, to, in my mind, I can't imagine what his inner life is like because it just seems to me it must be so frightening. In fact, I think he's built such an edifice around himself that he maybe isn't even in touch uh, with his inner life. And it's hard to be compassionate for him because he behaves in such a bullying fashion. And I believe he's hurting people by the kinds of things he's saying, the ridiculous things that he said in the last 10 days about, um, you know, identity cards for our our Muslim brothers and sisters. Um, And yet simply responding to him by insulting him or calling him a bully uh, or fighting back, most likely is just going to entrench him further. The very best thing uh, that, we could do um, in terms of political policy and community action is to respond to such bullying by making the most inclusive and welcoming spaces for the people that he's bullying right now. So the very best thing you can do to oppose Donald Trump's bullying uh, is to go and befriend some Muslim people in your, in your community. And then if you ever actually meet Donald Trump or if you meet people who share his views, they just need to be listened to and heard and when the space opens up to, to, to talk back, I learned something from Brian McLaren, the wonderful writer uh, and, and friend on this. Um, he says that what he does when he's, when he's in a space with someone who's saying objectionable things, uh, and I certainly think that Donald, for instance, Donald Trump's opinion on Muslims is far more objectionable to, than the F word in any movie. Um, the, because I believe Donald Trump's words about Muslims are doing genuine, active, direct harm to people. I don't think a word, uh, har- uh, the F word in a movie, harms people the way mm-hmm. uh, his words uh, will have done. Um, anyway, Brian, Brian McLaren taught me that when, when he's with someone who's saying something really objectionable, he will hear them out and then he might say, wow, I see it differently. Um, it's a really interesting phrase that because first of all, it's an I statement. It's not saying you're wrong and let me show you why. Mm-hmm. It's, it's taking responsibility and saying, I, I see the world differently. And also the use of the word differently is not the same as saying wrong. Uh, it's saying it's, it's just different. And then if the, if the person responds to that by saying, oh, tell me more, Brian might say, well, Nah, now's not the time. But if you if you if you want to ask me another time, uh, I'd be glad to talk with you about it. And what that often does is it is it reduces the tension, especially if it's followed up with, "Would you like to have a cup of coffee and we can talk about something else?" And maybe talk about what you have in common. You know, what's your favorite sport, or what's your favorite? Let's even start with what's your favorite color, or tell me about um, uh, your your favorite landscape. Um, it, it kind of reduces the tension and then it opens the opportunity that the next time you talk about it, 
it will be when the other person says, hey, you know, you remember when we were talking about that the other week? I'm interested to know more. And so the initiative comes from them and they will, the fact that they're bringing it up is an indication that they're ready for the conversation. And then at that point you can say, well, look, here's, here's what my experience has, has taught me. Um, there's very little point in just having a fight with someone who's already angry. Um, that's not, again, not the same as if someone is doing imminent physical harm to someone. You want to intervene then uh, uh, with great energy. Um, I'm talking about how do we shape a public conversation that might make it more likely for us to do less damage to each other going forward. And if I believe what I think I believe about what human beings are, then I have to love Donald Trump because hating Donald Trump is actually hating myself. Uh, And I have to have compassion for him because the part of me that doesn't is actually showing it's being merciless to myself. Uh, Not to mention the pragmatic argument that it would probably be good if Donald Trump became a nicer guy. He's not going to become a nicer guy by me insulting him. Mm -hmm. When you talk about, uh, about so many of our attitudes, perceptions being rooted in fear, um, I think of the the movie that came out a couple of years ago, God's Not Dead. Yeah. Did you see that? No. <laughs> <laughs> I I um the movie resonated with so many evangelical Christians. And I think the reason is is that it it held up this particular worldview um that is exactly what they want to see. Yeah. Um, but I don't think it's true. <laughs> um, and, and just as you were talking about the fear, I, I, I think that it confirmed so many of those fears, that the, uh, those fears of atheists, fears of Muslims, fears of the dominant culture, fears of secularism. Um, but, it showed that as long as we hold to a certain perspective and speak out when we should, that our God will overcome. Mm-hmm. Um, but for for so many, so much of that audience, and the and the 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 film was, I think, surprisingly successful. Uh, for so much of that audience, that movie was true. Um, yeah, but for many, many others, it was simply the perspective that's locked into a certain kind of worldview that only a minority of Americans hold to. Mm-hmm. Um, how how do we how do we become people who are able to differentiate what is simply confirming our own worldview or? something that is holding a, a bigger and better truth. Well, and maybe it doesn't feel better. Um yeah. because the the move the movie that is more true is probably saying things don't always work out the way you think they should. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean there's there's 
I, I'm sure there's some truth in God's Not Dead, just as I, uh, there's some truth in D- D- Django Unchained. Um, I said Django, um, which, which is really interesting. It's the first time I've mispronounced it. It's Django Unchained, um, which is from a completely opposite end of the, the, the political, theoretical, philosophical uh, spectrum. Um, but the, the, and the reason I bring up Django is Django is a film which uh, people might forget. It, it actually came out a year before, or about 10 months before 12 Years a Slave. And it was, at that point, the most stark portrayal of uh, slavery in America that I'd ever seen in cinema. And 12 Years a Slave ex- exceeded that. Uh, but I was really struck, really horrified by, by Django. And then I was also horrified by the fact that Tarantino resolved the problem by having Django use titanic ultimate force and massacring everybody who depressed him. Right. Um, which, you know, aside from anything else, it's, it's, it, it, that isn't what history tells us about how social movements work. You know, history tells us that, that, that less violent and nonviolent social movements tend to produce more stable societies than violent revolutions do. So even if you just really love violence and you really want to see Django burn the house down, um, it's not in your long-term interests to, you know, quote-unquote, resolve your problem through ultimate force. And what I know of God's not, not dead, it's not in your ultimate interest to beat your philosophical opponent into submission and to prove that you were right all along so that your closed set, your closed identity set can feel safe and stable for just a little while longer. Because I just don't think that's the way peace works. The way peace works is when one human being opens their heart to difference in another. Now, as someone who's identified as a, as a progressive and someone with evangelical roots uh, who has, has has moved away from those? That has to work in both directions. I have to open my heart um, to the beauty and truth and light and love in the hearts of the people who I would dispute their uh, intellectual and ideological foundations. The way we have conversations about that is going to determine the outcome. The fact is, most of us aren't even having those conversations. We're not even talking uh, with people who are, who are different. I come from a society where eventually uh, people started having conversations with each other who literally would have advocated each other's death. Mm. prior, to, even, even, and, and, and even when they were talking with each other, their movements were still active in supporting or legitimizing violence. And as a result of those conversations over decades, the descendants, if you like, of those political movements now share power together in government. Violence has drastically reduced. And instead of advocating each other's death, they now argue with each other politically. And sometimes they even agree. It's not a perfect situation, but it's a lot better than killing each other. Um, your question was about how, like, how do we unlock ourselves? I can't speak for the people to whom God's Not Dead really appealed. And I can't speak to the people who really thought Django was the most amazing 
film they'd ever seen. I can only speak for myself. And the one thing I'd say is I've learned from people who are willing to open themselves to the possibility that there might be more truth to learn. I had an old professor who said that to him, being a liberal meant asserting that the possibilities of truth have not been exhausted. And so that's why a liberal opposes the, cap, the, the, the death penalty, uh, because you can never be sure that you're executing the right person. Now, there's, there's thousands of other reasons to oppose uh, the death penalty. Uh, but if you allowed yourself to believe that there's always another part of the story, you wouldn't kill anyone, ever. <laughs> um, you would always be asking yourself, what are the other possibilities here? Um, and I don't know if this is just, this is something that's rooted in personality type. I do believe that anything we can do to reduce fear will help. And I, again, to return to something I've said a couple of times, insulting people who are different, even if they are powerful, is probably not the path uh, to reducing fear. Sure. But, uh, yeah. And as you talk about Django, I I see parallels with that same kind of, well, Tarantino movies are kind of support the idea that violence is the answer. (laughs) And I think they often appeal to us because there is something in us that wants that. We uh-huh. want we want to see Hitler get machine gunned down sure. and burned up in the theater. Sure. Um, and you know we and we want to see the slave owners butchered. Um, but yeah, it doesn't it doesn't lead to something better. It just That's, leads to something worse. <laughs> well, it's it it's it, it you know in the film in the films it it always leads to closure. And that's a lie, because that doesn't happen in real life hmm. uh, with violence. What happens in real life with with violence is it just perpetuates and perpetuates and perpetuates. Hmm. Um, the 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 this, the situation in the in the former Yugoslavia in the late eighties, early nineties is directly connected to how Yugoslavia was treated at the end of the First World War. Clearly, it wasn't the people who were alive at the end of the First World War that perpetuated the violence in the early 1990s. They were dead or elderly by then. It was their grandchildren who carried with them a memory of what they considered to be betrayal. Uh, And, I mean, the Northern Ireland situation, in some respects, the divisions between people who identify as British and people who identify as, as Irish have been happening in Ireland since about the 1170s. So clearly, there's no one alive who was there at the start. The reason it has ended, the reason the violence has, has largely ended is because there was a mutual renunciation by two parties. It wasn't a situation where one party totally overwhelmed and totally dominated uh, the other. And this, this is why you know, the, 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 the question about tactics regarding ISIS uh, has, has got to be influenced and um, seeded by people who understand conflict resolution processes because frankly the, the 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 only way that you could comprehensively prevent uh uh ISIS type attacks is literally to kill every single person in the world who could ever possibly support 
such attacks or do something else. <laughs> do something else that doesn't involve killing um, inordinate numbers of people. Do something else that involves a sane security policy but also addresses uh, uh, legitimate grievances that that people who do not support violence are experiencing and in the vacuum of for, for instance you know the, the 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 pause in the middle east peace process does not serve uh, the peace and well-being uh, of, of the world because you know if 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 we work for a further reduction of violence and a comprehensive solution in israel palestine i you know you can guarantee the reasons that are given by people who perpetuate violence uh, uh, will, will, will reduce because they won't be able to say, because of the treatment of the Palestinians, we'll do this. The same as in, in Ireland when we started to address social and economic concerns. Uh, any justification that people could give, and I don't think there was ever any justification for the use of violence either by the state or non-state actors in, in Ireland. Um, but you, if you actually do the right thing, if you actually seek to reduce poverty, if you actually seek to make amends for your colonizing imperial uh, power, you will remove the reasons why young men particularly join uh, these movements. I'm not sure that films like Django, uh, I don't know if they have an impact or not. I hypothesize that they do because I know a lot of people who are willing to support the use of violence. Uh, and when you ask them why, they say because it works. And then when you do a little bit of historical conversation with each other and discover that it doesn't really work, you know, at the, at the very best, it's a, it's a short-term solution that leaves a legacy that other people have to pick up afterwards. Um, so, you know, and, you know, if you were talking to Quentin Tarantino, he would say the violence in my films has no relevance whatsoever uh, to the real world, and I just I I I think that's uh, I, I think that's a cheap response, and the onus is on him to prove why that's the case. At the same time, he's probably legitimately quite tired of feeling insulted by people who who blame the latest school shooting on the violence in his movies, as if as if he pulled the trigger himself. There's a very complex reality here um, to do with you know you cannot blame. Quentin Tarantino for the foundations of Western culture. You can ask artists and storytellers to tell a better story. Uh, and, and in that view, a, a better version of Django would be one which tells the truth about the horror of slavery and tells the truth about uh, white people's, you know, quote-unquote, good white people's complicity, uh, the, 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 the people about whom Martin Luther King would have been talking uh, about had he been alive at the time when he talked about the, it's the silence of our, our friends that we'll remember more than the words of our enemies and, and shows the legacy of, of, of violence. You could still make a really entertaining, compelling, and a far better movie uh, if you did it that way. So can you give us a few recommendations of what what are some films that you would say tell a better story and influence mm. toward us a, a better world yeah um sure I'll, I'll start with some very very recent ones um i think that uh mm, that's a really good question because it's, <laughs> it's, it's <laughs> 
Well, Spectre actually, as if you want to, you know, an out and out entertaining film that uh, I don't think is a great film, but it, it, it does something quite wonderful in terms of how it deals with its villain. Um, Spectre's a, a, a great upper, a great opportunity. There's a one, the, the best film I've seen this year is called Listen to Me, Marlon. It's a documentary and, or really a piece of crafted nonfiction which takes audio recordings of Marlon Brando's personal journals and marries them to clips from his films and archive footage of him uh, in the real world. And what I love about it is it's an iconic figure who has been uh, heretofore inscrutable you know brando didn't really talk about his personal life in in interviews uh, but in this film it's so revelatory about um the struggle to be uh, uh, an influential person the struggle to live with the influence that he ended up having and how do you be an ethical person uh, with your power um and i think this is as as valid a question to someone who doesn't have any public profile at all uh, just as it is valid for Barack Obama, because we all have spheres of influence mm. and we all have inner struggles. Uh, are, are we going to live from uh, the inside out, as Parker Palmer calls it, or are we going to live for external reward? And uh, that question, how you answer that question, will determine uh, whether or not you're, you, you're going to become a violent person. Um, that's a very adult film, but to go to the other end of the, the, the spectrum, the most pleasurable, entertaining uh, experience I had in a movie theater this year was with Shaun the Sheep, which is a, a Shaun the Sheep movie, a wonderful British animated film from the same people who are behind the Wallace and Gromit movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's, in terms of its physical comedy, it's as good as a Buster Keaton film it has some great critique of celebrity culture and lovely advocacy of having an inclusive community and again the way they deal with their villain um is is, let's just say it's highly influential on on specter um and uh i i'm i'm a great advocate of uh challenging the notion of there being a division between high culture and low culture. Uh, I I love The Exorcist, a really scary adult movie. I love Eternity and a Day, uh, a really almost impenetrable, uh, philosophically uh, uh, rich, challenging uh, Greek film. I love E.T., a family film about an alien coming to visit uh, that that really masks a story about the impact of of uh, parental abandonment uh, on a family. I love the Elephant Man, which is a a, a, a painful drama about what it is to be uh, m- marginalised. And I love Adam McGowan's film Exotica, uh, which is a film about uh, one of the most awful things that could possibly happen to anybody. And all of them, um, you know, Greek highbrow, Spielbergian populist. Um, painful adult drama and everything in between they're united by the fact that each of them begin with the letter E Uh, that's enough of a reason why we should see them there's a lot of film critics out there who would say that a film like E.T. or a film like Shaun the Sheep isn't isn't worthy of our uh, attention and I don't think that's I don't think that's a valid perspective at all what's worthy of our attention is any sincere attempt at making beauty in the world, uh, whether it's comedy, whether it's aimed at kids, whether it's horror, whether it's, whether it's philosophically um, 
complex or as simple as just holding a, a, a flower in your hand. They're all worthy if they're sincere attempts at making beauty. Um, what would you... I, I think it's very interesting when you talk about high culture and low culture and, and, and getting rid of that distinction. Um, and I think I would agree. What do you, what do you think of those, those ideas? Well, I guess I, on one of our earlier shows, we discussed um, Snowpiercer. Mm-hmm. And I had a couple people on that <laughs> loved it, and I had one person on who thought it was was not good at all, mm-hmm. um, mostly because it was heavy-handed and unsubtle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, I mean, those, that wasn't the only <laughs> reason. But, you know, I, I think there is – is there a bit of snobbery in that kind of uh, assessment of, yeah. of art? You know, Stanley Kubrick – was someone someone I can't remember who it was someone wrote about having dinner with him and I I, th- I think the story was that he had the appetizer and the entree and the dessert all served at the same time and he would and he would eat you know which he'd take a, a fork full of his roast beef and a and then a spoonful of cheesecake and then he would go back to his you know his shrimp cocktail or whatever and uh, the the person dining with him said why you know why are you doing that and he says it's all food um. And the the I just don't like the I I'm more compelled by the idea of what are you for, what are you going to make, and instead of what are you against, and um, what what is the more beautiful world, what is the practice of the better that 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 functions as the criticism of the bad. And to me, one of the reasons Movies and Meaning does things the way we're trying to do is because so much conversation about film uh, is, 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 goes to one of two extremes. It's either so intellectually highbrow that it can't be understood by most people, and that doesn't mean it's smart and that doesn't mean it's better. In fact, I would, I would suggest um, just because you're brilliant, if you can't communicate in a way that people understand, then you may not actually be as brilliant as you think you are. Um, and and the exclusivist. Oh, yeah, yeah. And this, the second extreme is the kind of fanboy, uh, like anything to do with Star Wars or anything to do with Hellboy is great and you know, the, you got the phenomenon of, of 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 movies being voted the greatest film ever made before they've even been seen uh, by by folk. Now, I also don't get too exercised about that because people, you know, we all do what we do, and I I I, I waste time on Facebook as well. Um, what I what I would rather do, and, and it, here's here's the kind of maybe the best story I can tell uh, about this, and then I actually need to. I need to go. Um, uh, there was a film that came out nearly 20 years ago called Mr. Holland's Opus. Richard Dreyfus is yeah. in it. He plays a, a school teacher uh, and a, com- a composer. And I, to this day, I have still not seen the movie, and I'm going to make time to see it at, at, at some point. But a friend of mine went to see it with a friend of his uh, in Pittsburgh. And my friend was 
not impressed with the movie. And his friend was so moved by the movie uh, that they were uh, weeping happy tears when it was over. And the conversation between them went like this. What did you think of the movie? And she said, I think it's the greatest film ever made. What did you think? And he said, I think it's the kind of film that people who haven't seen too many films might think is the greatest film ever made. (laughs) You know, it's a classic snarky line. It's funny. You laughed at it. I laughed at it even as I tell it. But just think about it for a moment. What, What was the effect? of saying that. You're, you're talking to someone who's feeling emotionally open because they've just had this moving experience and what they're reacting to is partly the film and partly whatever it resonated with in their life history. And it's a beautiful thing that's happening to them. They've been moved by a work of art to be more humane. I would say crying happy tears is always a sign of being more humane. You certainly don't, you don't tend to commit acts of violence while you're crying happy tears. In fact, you might be likely to go and embrace a stranger or do a kind act for somebody else. Um, And what my friend did, who I love dearly, and and, and we've talked about this before, what he did was precisely what I would have done uh, at at the time, uh, and I still may have a tendency to do this, although I'm trying trying to reduce it, is I think he kind of crushed that beautiful, humane experience. Yeah. Um, Now... From one perspective, he might actually be right that only someone who hasn't seen very many films might think that Mr. Holland's Opus is the greatest film ever made. He might, that, there might be some objective uh, standard that, that he's appealing to there. But wouldn't it have been so much better if instead of saying what he said, he had responded with, wow. I don't care what I thought about the movie. I'm really interested in what you're thinking right now and what you're feeling. Tell me why you loved it. Tell me what was going on for you in that story. I can see that you're moved. I I, I feel privileged to be in your presence while you're revealing this part of yourself to me. Um, Tell me more. And then if she had asked him, what did you think? He might have said what Brian McLaren advocates. Well, <laughs> I see it differently, but let's not talk about that now. Um, I, what I can tell you is here's three films that I, that I really love that it reminded me of that you might enjoy because you loved it so much. And then in a couple of days, we can talk about what I didn't like. And, and another, another method of this, the way I try to approach film criticism is uh, through a feedback loop, uh, which would be to say, okay, what worked about this film? Ask that question first. And then instead of what didn't work, try to imagine what would have been better than what actually happened in this movie. Um, And why would it have been better? And then you cut out this, well, let me tell you why you're wrong, or let me tell you what was awful about this film. I was on the other side of this experience with a film a, a, a couple of years back. I was, I was there uh, with my partner and uh, I, was, I was really moved. Uh, it's a film called Warrior it's, uh, with Tom Hardy and Joel Edgerton. They, they, they uh, play brothers who end up, um, through ridiculous coincidence, uh, being selected to fight against each other in a mixed martial arts um, championship. And they've got a lot of you know, father issues and a lot of brokenness in their lives. And it's not a great film, but it moved me. 
And, and my partner, um, at one point, I think he was going to turn to me and say something like, oh, this is ridiculous. But he saw that I was crying. And so he didn't tell me what he was thinking about the film. He just kind of touched my hand and, and showed me that he was affirming what I was feeling. And afterwards, he did this, this thing that I've just advocated. He asked me, hey, what, what it, tell, me, tell me what you're feeling. Tell me why you love this. And a couple of days later, he told me, you know, about some holes in the plot and some stuff that felt contrived to him. And it was so much easier to have that conversation afterwards. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and, and it, and it reju- because frankly, we could have had that conversation in, 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 a, in a way that would have been a kind of violence and it would have just crushed my experience and become fractious. Uh, instead, I got to have my meaningful experience. He got to have his meaningful interpretation of it and I think we're both right. Yeah. Yeah, it, it makes me think of, of speaking different languages and that, that, that sometimes we have to let people hear things in the language that they understand. Yeah. And not just say, no, you have to understand my language. I see it differently as a, as a powerful tool of violence reduction. I see it differently. I'd love to know more about how you see it and why you see it the way you do. The theory of nonviolent communication suggests that the purpose of conversation is simply listening in order to try to understand better. Most of us have been raised in a culture in which we've been taught that the purpose of conversation is persuasion Mm -hmm. in order that the person we're talking to might agree with us or that they will show us that they disagree so we can know not to trust them anymore. Um, I think when I have conversations with people, particularly people who are holding lots of differences uh, to, 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 to me, if we're just consciously trying to listen for the purpose of understanding, it's way better than just, can I get another check against, oh, I now add this person to the list of people who agree with me. Yeah. Because then I don't ever have to learn anything mm-hmm. from them. Yeah, and I guess that's often what we do with films. We look for the the one that agrees with us, and we can agree with it. Yeah. Um, rather than the one that will give us a different understanding. Well, we can find way. The, you know, agreeing with the surface level interpretation of the film is one thing, but looking at the heart of it, you know, some films it's the color of the sunset that leaps out. The container, the rest of the film may not matter. I really just like the sunset. And I can be talking to someone or with someone who's so profoundly politically different from me that we don't think we have anything in common, but discover that they like beautiful sunsets too. That's a place to start. And that ultimately is going to, that's going to be the healing of the world. That's going to be the thing that ends war. Is when, when we when we uncover the layers of core commonality that all human beings have with each other. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we meet the desire for shelter and, and for food and for protection. But then that's not all. In addition to that, there's the need for beauty. And what you find beautiful might not be the same thing that I find beautiful, but you do need beauty in your life and I do need beauty in my life. 
and we can find a way. Like say, you know, you might like football. I don't like football, but you might find something so exquisite in football that it's the exquisiteness that we can talk about. You know, I'm not going to get interested in football as a result, but I'm interested in the exquisite. Um, this is such a good conversation that we could keep going for a long time, but I can't. <laughs> <laughs> Because well, I do appreciate I, you I taking this go. much time. I, go. I notice you say film instead of film like Pete <laughs> Rollins. Lots of uh, is that an American thing? Well, it depends on it depends on where I am. You know, <laughs> I, I like we're talking about you know changing the way you talk in order to communicate with the particular <laughs> audience you're with. I say film when I'm at home. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for chatting with me, Gareth. I, you're I so do welcome. Appreciate the time and. Um, It has. It's been a great conversation. Thanks for listening. Please check out the other Media Scorch podcasts, Where Are We Going?, where we talk about specific issues of faith and life. The Innovation Podcast has extended interviews, and the regular Film Matters podcast, where we examine specific films. On the next show, we'll be looking at the film God's Not Dead 2. Thanks for listening. You can find more at mediascorchpodcasts.com.